Corey, have you ever been to Cheshire, Connecticut? The center of population in Connecticut and home to Roaring Brook Falls, Connecticut's tallest single-drop waterfall. That Cheshire? Yep, that's the one. Uh, nope, haven't been there. Why? Cheshire is home to the Public and Affordable Housing Research Corporation, PARC. They produce some leading research on public housing and, together with the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, produce the National Housing Preservation Database, perhaps the best source of public and affordable housing data available. All right, so it's definitely on my list now, uh, especially since we've spent some time on recent episodes talking about the long history of public and affordable housing and what's changed over time. And there's more to the story than what we've covered so far. There's work going on that complements improvements to the housing stock, like what we talked about with the RAD program, and new efforts to improve the lives of people who live in public housing. And central to telling that story is a pair of researchers in Cheshire, Connecticut, at Park. Hello and welcome to the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. Today we have what's essentially part three of a series of episodes dealing with public housing. In May, we had a podcast where we had Andrew Arend from the National Low-Income Housing Coalition talking about the shortage in units affordable to extremely low-income renters. And in June, we had Tom Davis from the Office of Recapitalization at HUD talking about the history and future of the RAD program. And in this episode, we have Keeley Stater and Kelly McElwain from PARC on to talk about some other aspects of public housing in America not just as a housing stock, but as a key part of life for over a million households. They've studied educational outcomes, health partnerships, and employment trends in public housing, and they've been doing a lot of work studying the Moving to Work program. Not to mention they run one of the most important single sources of data on affordable housing, the National Housing Preservation Database. Keely and Kelly, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Corey and Steve. Thanks for having us. Yes, and Keely and Kelly, we have so much to cover today because you've done a wide range of work on public housing, but we should orient ourselves first. What is public housing? How much is there? And where can it be found? Well, public housing is essentially a group of federally owned properties that are maintained and operated with federal funds by local housing authorities. Uh, And it can be found all over the U.S. and U.S. territories. And as you mentioned earlier, there are over one million units. They're managed by about uh, 3,300 public housing authorities. And among those 1 million units, there's about 6,800 properties. And they're anywhere from families, elderly, and individuals with disabilities live in public housing. So it serves a wide variety of people. Well, so how did did Park get into studying public housing? Well, it's an interesting story. Uh, We were actually, our parent company, HEI Group, was founded in the late 80s in response to a market failure in the insurance industry. Um, They were founded by public housing authority executive directors. So we are governed and essentially owned by public housing authorities. Uh, So it's kind of our main interest. Um, So I think maybe it would be good to talk about some of those, some of the trends that we that you've seen? So you talked about some of the population that, that lives there, children and seniors and 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 the disabled. So what what have you seen o- over time? What, what's changed? So we're seeing that the people that are served by both public housing and um, other affordable housing uh, programs in general, that they're becoming more vulnerable to uh, other situations in poverty. So we're seeing an increasing number of seniors and individuals with disabilities 
being both admitted to and served by public and affordable housing programs. And this is due to like a self-selection into the program, but people that need it most are um, kind of both being given priority to receive assistance and are seeking out assistance themselves. And um, these data and trends can be found in our annual housing impact report where we look at demographic changes and people assisted through a federally subsidized housing program. So how far back does that report go? We started producing it in 2014, I believe. Yeah, 2014. And each year we look at kind of how many people are assisted by publicly supported housing programs in general and describing um, some of the barriers that they face. And usually we have some cool maps, interactive maps that go along with it, um, including one called How Far Does Rental Assistance Go? that looks at the percentage of renters um, in various demographic groups that are receiving some type of housing assistance. Okay. And so maybe we could start with, uh, with one of those groups and, and talk about seniors. I know that you talk about them as a vulnerable population. Can you tell us about that a little bit? that's a great point. I mean, we often talk about in in our business that the, the senior housing demographic is an important one. And uh, with baby boomers, um, you know, that number continuing to increase, you talk about numbers already increasing, but it's going to increase even more the demand for those. So do you see a plan for um, supply of public housing for seniors growing, or is that hard to forecast? really seen it growing. Um, Public housing specifically has more seniors than the other assistance programs like Section 8 or project-based Section 8. Um, So they do have buildings that are specifically designated for seniors and people living with disabilities. So they're a little bit ahead of the game in that in that way. Um, But you know the the biggest production program now is LIHTC which doesn't necessarily favor senior buildings. Um, The 202 program is 
you know, certainly not growing quickly. Um, so, you know, I don't think we really have any data to show that, that people are building more senior properties. And maybe you mentioned the 202 program. Maybe, maybe for the benefit of our listeners, you could describe that a little bit. Sure. So it's a program that provides a direct loan and um, also operating subsidies to properties that are targeted specifically towards seniors. And there's also another program, um, Section 811, that targets individuals with disabilities. And so tying this back to our, our conversation with, with Tom Davis before and, and HUD's uh, you know, interest in, in uh, promoting uh, RAD for PRAC, right? so I, I think that's probably an opportunity to uh, do a little bit more for the, uh, the seniors population. Um, you know, ha- have you uh, been following that closely, and how do you see that playing out? Um, we haven't actually been following that too closely, um, but certainly there are a lot of opportunities to build um, for seniors. Just because we're not seeing, uh, you know, like specific senior designated properties go up doesn't mean that seniors aren't living in some of those new properties. So I think we just we don't have good data to tell other than um, looking at the ages of people living in the properties to see after the fact uh, who ends up moving in there. Um, but one interesting thing we've been seeing in the public housing arena is uh, some housing authorities have been building um, housing for grand families. So it'll be sort of senior-based housing, but they'll include playgrounds and um, child care centers or something like that. They've been seeing an increasing number of um, seniors caring for their grandchildren. So that's an interesting development. That's interesting. And I, I think another of the vulnerable populations is children. And so maybe we could also speak to um, children in public housing. towards kind of publicly support housing programs in general, so it does include some other programs. Okay. Um, rental assistance programs in general serve 5 million children. Uh, we are seeing that the number of children served by these programs have been decreasing over time, and that's likely due to shifting uh, demographic trends in that um, the population is aging, people are having less children, and we're seeing that kind of the So I know you, you've studied a lot what the uh, housing authorities are doing uh, across the board. And, and so what have you seen in your research? Uh, what are the housing authorities doing specifically to support uh, children and educational outcomes? Um, so I think uh, two years ago, 2017, we did um, a research project 
with the Council of Large Public Housing Authorities, or CLAFA, on education, out, educational outcomes um, and what exactly public housing authorities are doing in terms of offering services related to education or that support educational outcomes. And we found that half of all PHAs, we estimated, were doing some type of um, supportive service for uh, their, their residents regarding education. Um, and that could be anything from after-school tutoring um, to summer programs to partnering with the Boys and Girls Club at the gym on the Housing Authority's property. Uh, so they're really doing a variety of different things to help support their residents and help them learn um, more effectively. The majority of these uh, education initiatives were supported by partnerships uh, with nonprofits or school districts in their community. And we see that kind of the way and the types of programs that are offered really varies from community to community. Um, and in some cases, housing authorities are uh, bringing these education programs kind of to a community center or directly to the property itself. So it kind of it varies really widely in how uh, these programs are implemented. Were, were there any uh, differences in uh, use of the program depending on how they were implemented? Like if they're implemented on site versus at a community center? We unfortunately don't have great data on that, but that's kind of our part two of the research project that we would love to find um, out more. Um, we really want to get some information on participation in these programs and also outcomes from these programs. So how are they helping students advance in school and eventually graduate or do better on test scores? There's some outcome measurements like that. So we don't really know, um, but I think it probably depends. Certainly, we do know that site-based programs are easier to manage and track, so uh, it's easier to offer them if you have um, project-based housing properties in your portfolio as opposed to, you know, it's harder to implement in a Section 8-only tenant-based program um, because there is no central location where you can offer these things to the sort of same extent. So, Did you see a difference in, in your research also uh, between uh, – sizes and locations of, of housing authorities and what types of programs they would they would offer or were able to offer? Yeah. Uh, certainly the larger housing authorities were able to offer more types of programs and more programs and serve more students. But certainly the larger housing authorities were able to do it more consistently. And we've actually been seeing, um, and CLAF has really been a pioneer in this, um, housing Authority is starting to partner uh, and kind of drive the partnerships. So really, instead of uh, people in the community coming to them and say, we have this program, can we offer it on site? They're seeking out partnerships, and um, they're able to kind of have an equal stake in the partnership where they work with their local school district. Uh, maybe they're doing some data sharing, and they have a list of outcomes they'd like to achieve with the program. So they're certainly really um, becoming much more sophisticated in the level of partnership that uh, they're interested and able to implement. I mean, we also did a similar survey that looked at the types of partnerships and uh, health initiatives that housing authorities were involved in, and we saw similar results in that about half of housing authorities were engaged in some type of health initiative. And similar to our education research, we found that larger housing authorities tended to provide uh, services at higher rates and kind of to a wider variety of um, both health conditions, too, and uh, the, the 
formalization of their partnerships tended to be uh, stronger, so they have um, MOUs in place, uh, but there's still um, lots of room for growth in all of these areas. And to Kelly's earlier point, um, the reason why this is so important for housing agencies uh, to be entering into these partnerships and be so interested in offering um, educational support to their residents is because, as Kelly mentioned, uh, a lot of the people who are selecting into housing assistance programs are already starting a step behind in terms of um, getting to the finish line, getting to graduation, getting to college. Um, the students coming in seeking public housing and uh, Section 8 and the different housing assistance programs have higher rates of uh, learning disabilities and developmental delays, so they're already starting a step behind and they need some extra help. Um, plus, not to mention all the challenges they face simply by being in poverty um, that push them another step behind. So um, really, this is a really crucial support that housing agencies can offer their residents. And public housing and really affordable housing properties in general that are site-based are uniquely positioned to uh, really foster and develop these types of service partnerships because the populations they serve can be like a cluster of um, constituents that a nonprofit provider in their community might be serving. So uh, really just collecting data on kind of the conditions and vulnerabilities that their residents face can really be a big selling point to kind of get a service provider or partnership directly at the property that uh, so are, were there any particular partnerships uh, that you saw in your research that had especially high uh, uh, adoption rates or usage rates? You know, any sort of exemplary um, programs? I can think of one, one partnership. It's kind of a unique example because the agency is an MTW agency, a moving-to-work agency, so they have some special flexibilities that they're able to attach to programs. Um, but Tacoma Housing Authority has a partnership with one of their neighborhood elementary schools. And I believe before the partnership, the turnover rate in that elementary school was over 100%. They had so many families churning in and out um, of the school. And Tacoma implemented a new voucher program through its MTW flexibilities that attached the voucher um, to a promise to stay at the elementary school while your child was there and some additional things. Uh, and they were able to dramatically reduce turnover in the elementary school and improve student learning outcomes as well. Uh, so that's been a really kind of banner example of a partnership that has really worked. Wow, that, that's quite impressive. Uh, and you, you mentioned you see a lot of the you know, similar types of partnerships in the uh, health side. Uh, are there some sort of exemplary partnerships there that have, that have really started to work early on? Um, yes. Uh, I, there's quite a number in the health space. As we mentioned, as Kelly mentioned earlier, uh, especially for seniors, uh, people who are selecting into housing assistance have a lot of health challenges too. They're starting a step behind in terms of their health. They're more likely to have chronic conditions um, and, and report that they're not feeling well uh, and, and things like that. Uh, so again, it's really important to be able to bring in the partners to help with that. So. Um, CLAFA, again, has kind of spurred this effort, and they've um, worked with United Healthcare uh, to 
uh, start a pilot program with a number of housing authorities to um, really help them assess their residents' need and then bring in the partners. And sometimes it's a, a medical care provider, a local hospital. Um, sometimes a really great example is in Austin. They are partnering with a local medical school, Dell Medical School, uh, and they're able to provide their resident services and um, do really uh, amazing needs assessments on their residents to really find out what they need. They're able to get them transportation to healthcare appointments. Uh, and Austin was actually able to uh, hire a community health worker that uh, is a resident to monitor the health needs of um, some of the properties and help provide their residents a better um, healthy environment. So that was really exciting to see that. It is exciting. So how, how does this happen in a place like Austin where the, the different parties come together? Do, do you get insight into that? Uh, so I think Austin is a really special case. Uh, they started with a residence. They started from the ground up, and they were able to get some funding to do this, so that's important, of course. Uh, and they did a survey of their residents to find out uh, what their conditions were and what their needs were. And when, when armed with those data, they were able to approach a number of partners, including the medical school, um, who partners who had um, sort of community obligations to help in their community or wanted, uh, had some sort of mission-based element to their organization. And armed with the data, they were able to convince them that um, this would be a good outlet. And um, they were able to set up a really uh, sort of equal partnership uh, in helping the residents. But in speaking to other uh, housing authorities and public housing in general, um, we're seeing that kind of data is really important to make the selling point to connect these partnerships and uh, allow them to grow and to really make the case that um, the, the service provider partnership will, will help the residents of the property and the community overall so that kind of both organizations are able to meet their goals. That's interesting. When you refer to data in that in that way, are you talking about outcomes data on how there's been successes or is it something? Well, outcomes data and then also just data on the needs of the population. So kind of showing that there is a strong need for a particular service in a region is a big selling point to kind of get the uh, get communication going and get the partnership going. And then uh, outcomes data is also really important, but would be a way to kind of make the selling point to strengthen it. So. And I think uh, increasingly housing providers uh, and to some extent education providers are aware that uh, housing is healthcare. Uh, if you're recovering, you can't recover if you don't have a home or if you have a substandard home. So we're seeing United Healthcare really invest in housing programs, and I think other insurers and housing providers will follow suit because it is an essential piece of your health. And we are seeing some public housing authorities engage in data sharing agreements to collect some of this uh, healthcare, both utilization and um, health conditions so that they better understand the needs of their residents. Are there any particular challenges in, in collecting that data? Uh, I, definitely. It's hard um, to collect data on your residents' health and their conditions because, uh, you know, privacy concerns. So Austin was really able to establish a high level of trust with their residents and, uh, you know, 
take the proper precautions to keep the data private and things like that. But trust is really key to getting those information um, and developing relationships. So I, I think it is hard to get those data. Um, we get those data at the national level, which is easy because we can use national surveys. But when you're drilling down to collect data from specific people, it becomes more difficult. But really, relationships are key. Right. And... Uh... You've talked about like gathering information from residents and uh, and just all the different great things that can be done once once they're on site there. Um, and then I know in a recent report that you had on trends in housing assistance, you also speak to expanding the affordable housing stock because obviously there's a lot of people that would like to be in the units and uh, and have not gotten an opportunity. Can you speak to um, uh, things that can be done to expand the the stock? different strategies that uh, communities and housing providers can make to expand the affordable housing stock. And this includes things like that communities can do, such as updating zoning requirements to make it easier to develop affordable housing. And and this would include uh, making it easier to develop accessory dwelling units, which are um, kind of homes that are built on single-family lots by the owner. Uh, research shows that these are, tend to be uh, more cost-effective to build and tend to be more affordable. It can also allow people to age in place. Uh, additionally, updating requirements of zoning requirements that allow buildings to be built either taller or reducing cost-prohibitive uh, requirements like parking and certain design elements can make it uh, more cost-effective to build affordable housing. Additionally, expanding local and state funding sources is really essential to making affordable housing pencil out. There are some federal sources that are available, but like low-income housing tax credits, but these don't cover all of the development costs. So uh, a lot of states have been stepping up to try to fill that gap, but continuing to expand those programs is really important. I think so. Yeah, that's Just like going down to accessory <laughs> dwelling units, yeah, dwelling units, manufactured housing, yeah, and then also uh, manufactured housing or modular housing is another way to expand the number of affordable homes that are built, and this this really makes it easier and more cost effective to build affordable housing, just because. Uh, in cities with um, high labor and construction costs, modular and manufactured housing can uh, allow the housing parts of the development to be shipped in so that the on-site costs are uh, more manageable. Uh, we're also seeing some cities are tackling the need for affordable housing by rezoning proper commercial properties in their city to residential. So particularly in cities with high commercial vacancy rates and vacant office buildings, we're seeing some cities kind of convert those buildings into apartment complexes that are affordable. And this really allows the city to kill two birds with one stone uh, (laughs) by adjusting high vacancy rates and then also uh, housing needs. I think it's important to remember, and we stress in the report, that these are kind of creative solutions that uh, communities are engaged in because of the long federal disinvestment. Um, So in addition to these creative strategies, more federal investment certainly 
would help to increase the supply of affordable housing. And then also, um, some housing providers, and this is more to the point that we were talking about earlier in the importance of partnerships. A lot of affordable housing providers, including public housing authorities, are developing innovative partnerships where um, one of their partners might help finance the construction of a property because it helps them achieve their goal. So uh, working with healthcare institutions to serve a high-needs patient um, in exchange for providing some assistance in building a stable home for them has been shown to be effective for some communities to kind of both expand the affordable housing stock and then allow um, health care providers to meet the needs of their most vulnerable population because they recognize that housing is health care. And by having a stable place to live, um, the health care provider is able to kind of reduce their costs by um, kind of making sure that their um, patients are stably housed. So you mentioned earlier in our conversation MTW, uh, so moving to work, right? And so I, I think I'd like to touch on that a little bit. Uh, one, just talking about what it is and what it means, uh, but also maybe in relation to this supply question, you know, does that allow housing authorities to be more creative in their uh, you know, uh, efforts to uh, tackle the supply question? But but first, please, like, sure. let, let's just talk through what, what MTW is and where it came from and... Um, so MTW, or Moving to Work, is a demonstration, a HUD demonstration program that gives uh, agencies, housing authorities, additional flexibility. So it grants, essentially grants them waivers from HUD rules to implement special local programs that meet local housing needs. Um, and they've been able to do a variety of different things based on the local need. Um, they've implemented over 300 different types of policy innovations. Um, and um, they've essentially been able to um, increase the quality and quantity of housing, help their residents become more self-sufficient, and um, meet the other goals of the program, uh, the statutory goals of the program, uh, more effectively with these waivers. And many of these policy innovations that they've tested have been implemented by HUD uh, later on. So uh, this program really is making a difference. And to our point earlier about expanding the affordable housing stock, we've seen that MTW agencies have been able to kind of reinvest their funding to um, create new affordable housing in their community and preserve some of their existing stock. So it really gives public housing authorities more flexibility to meet their local needs. How have they done that? Uh, you know, an example of, of uh, adding to the stock through MTW. Uh, so one important way that they can add to the stock, and uh, they've done it uh, a lot of different ways, um, is to kind of stop the bleeding, so stop the loss of affordable units. Uh, as we know, the multifamily affordable stock is getting older and needs preservation. So, for example, Cambridge Housing Authority um, was able to um, recapitalize its portfolio, essentially, uh, and preserve those units for another 40 or more years. Um, Oakland Housing Authority has been able to acquire new properties and create more affordable housing. As we know, Oakland has affordable housing 
shortage, and um, they weren't able to place voucher holders in many cases because there simply weren't units um, available that would meet the requirements. So they decided that they would purchase and build more affordable housing uh, to house their voucher holders, uh, which is what they did. So there are a lot of different agencies um, in the MTW program that have been able to expand the stock. And some of them are also creating um, kind of special uh, voucher programs that allow them to serve kind of targeted populations. And some of these programs, they're more kind of more short-term in nature, but are meant to kind of serve a different uh, need. So, for example, King County, which is an MTW agency, uh, targets homeless individuals. Uh, and they've really been able to create new types of vouchers that is a bed and a shelter or something like that that's not your standard type of unit uh, to be able to meet the need in their community. And San Diego had a, a problem with students, so they were able to partner with some local universities to build a dorm uh, where their students could live during the summer. So uh, those are some examples of sort of non-traditional housing assistance made possible through MTW flexibility. But one big piece of MTW is the ability to pool your funds. Uh, one challenge that housing authorities face is that they need to keep their voucher funds, uh, really all their different types of funds separate. But uh, MTW agencies are able to pool public housing and voucher funds and all their funds to allocate money to best meet the needs of their agency and their community. So that makes it a little easier for them to create these local programs and to uh, establish hard-hitting partnerships that have some stake in the game. Um, so uh, MTW does help them engage in these efforts a little more. Do, does MTW uh, also tie into, I know you've done some research on uh, employment trends in public housing, and you know, is there a sort of difference in those trends between MTW agencies and uh, and uh, those who are not MTW? And, and sort of generally, what are you seeing as uh, employment trends over time? Yeah, so there is a difference. We worked at APT Associates on a report that actually measured the performance of MTW agencies in comparison with a peer group of agencies that were very similar based on their service population and their size and things like that. And they found uh, one of the statutory goals of MTW is to increase self-sufficiency, uh, which essentially a lot of people interpret as um, helping residents obtain uh, gainful employment that will allow them to afford rental housing on their own. And MTW agencies in the performance indicator report um, were able to, uh, they had higher income households on average, and uh, they had um, lower lengths of stay. So it really looked like they were able to help their residents um, through job training and various programs like that that they implemented, find gainful employment, and uh, move on to market rate housing. Of course, uh, you know, Housing authorities don't track the residents after they leave in many cases, so we don't exactly know where they where they are, but we do know they left with higher incomes and they left more quickly. Um, so that makes sense that they would be able to do that. MTWs also had a lower percentage of zero earners, uh, and they saw uh, a decrease in their zero earners over time. So uh, it looks like they were able to put people on the employment track. Uh, and in terms of employment trends, um, you know, like, we, like we've been talking about, the kind of theme today is that uh, folks that are selecting into housing assistance have a unique set of challenges that are even bigger uh, than their low-income peers, so even worse than those who are already in poverty. And employment is 
certainly affected by that. We've seen that um, some of the barriers that assisted residents face are educational barriers. So uh, they people selecting into housing assistance generally have lower high school graduation rates, lower college graduation rates than their low-income peers. Um, so, of course, you know, they really need that extra step to build the skills uh, for employment. And uh, they face greater health challenges that we already talked about. Even um, people who are of working age are facing greater health challenges. Uh, they're more likely to be caretakers. So most, uh, I think it was 44% of um, people who are not seniors, not disabled, uh, live with someone under six or over 82 that would need around the clock care. Um, and so there are a lot of hurdles that they're facing. Um, but even though they're facing all those hurdles that are uh, more challenging than those faced by your average middle class person or even your average person living under the poverty line, um, most of them, most people who can work who are living in assisted housing are already working. I think, um, what was the, our stat, 88, I want to say 88% um, of people who are living in HUD assisted housing either were working or had worked in the previous year. So really, uh, most people who can are working. And, and that's a trend you've seen increasing uh, over time? Thank you. 
rising labor market, and we're seeing that the number of kind of middle wage jobs that are kind of the stepping stones to higher paying jobs has been decreasing. So um, we're seeing more jobs at the kind of low end of the spectrum and the high end of the spectrum, but it's a lot harder to get from one to the other, which kind of leaves people stuck. Yeah, and I think an interesting number that was in one of your reports was that uh, maybe that, that bridge in between is education and a college degree, and you say that only 8% of able-bodied working-age um, residents have uh, have a college degree. So certainly those that are getting college degrees are have the potential of, of um, not being in public housing. In our recent report we did on education, we looked at uh, low-income low in- um, families and how much they pay to go to college. And um, we found that it, for a public four-year college, um, families earning under $30,000 were still paying about $40,000 for that degree. Uh, and on the average wage of an assisted household, um, if they were able to pay 10% towards education costs, uh, it would take them 29 years to earn that four-year degree. So uh, it's really hard to pay for college uh, on, on a low salary on minimum wage. So it's uh, really difficult to make that transition. Yeah, and and I th- I saw that you also maybe even built a model on wages and exits from housing assistance. We did, yeah, we did um, a statistical model regression model that looked at the chances of exiting rental assistance um, based on every additional year of education that you gain, and we found that for every additional year, your uh, family was more eleven percent more likely to exit. So. If you got a college degree, you were 44% more likely to exit. Almost half again is likely. Uh, so certainly that is a big help. Uh, and in our um, report on employment trends, we did a similar model, and we looked at uh, how much money you had to make to exit. And uh, I think it was almost twice as much. Uh, someone who was exiting who was employed made twice as much as somebody who was working but uh, was not exiting. So you really almost have to double your salary, get a big promotion, or get that degree or something like that in order to exit. This is and this is some really insightful uh, and useful data. Have you seen uh, the housing authorities uh, taking your data uh, specifically and, and starting to make, uh, make policy changes based on it? I think they're certainly interested in our findings, and I think a lot of them intuitively knew these things already, but social science is proving the obvious. Uh, So I think they're looking at our reports and they're saying, yes, we see this, we see this. And some of them intuitively have have known these things. Um, For instance, Washington, D.C. Housing Authority, um, they have an apprenticeship program where they, um, you know, it's not just uh, connecting someone with a job, it's really giving them on-the-job training in the construction trade to um, help them learn the trade, gain the skills, and gain the experience to be able to qualify and keep a job in the skilled trade. Um, so I think they intuitively knew a lot of these things and were on those paths. Uh, and this just arms them again with data to help them prove it to funders and to their communities. Another way that you arm people with data, which is something that I know that we use, is the National Housing Preservation Database. And um, for we, we use it to know... I, across the country where units are um, that are in this universe of, of public housing or supported housing. Maybe you can just uh, tell people a little bit about it more, in more detail. Oh, we produce- 
here's the database with the National Low Income Housing Coalition. Uh, I just wanted to put that in there, and I'll let Kelly tell you about the database because she manages all the data and gets the fun job of putting it all together. So the National Housing Preservation Database, or we call it the NHPD for short, is the um, only deduplicated inventory of federally assisted housing properties in the U.S. And what makes it really special is that um, all of the data that we collect from both HUD and USDA on kind of the subsidies that are awarded to um, owners to make properties more affordable is kind of tracked by program. Um, and basically, we take all that data together, merge it to get a complete picture of how each property is funded, kind of who the owner is, when it's uh, when the subsidy was awarded, and kind of when it's at risk of loss. So it's a great resource for communities to kind of understand their housing stock holistically, and also to identify preservation needs. So. We track information such as the target tenant type, the latest subsidy end date, which is really when the uh, funding is kind of set to end and the property may no longer be affordable. And we also track other things like construction date and uh, kind of when the subsidy was awarded. So there's a lot of rich data available to kind of understand the inventory and the need for preservation. We've seen communities use it in a wide variety of ways. Like, I'm always surprised when talking to users about kind of how they're using the data as um, a wide variety of, of purposes. So. And I'd just like to mention you can find the database at preservationdatabase.org and you can find our research at park.org. All right. Well, thank you so much. I think that's a great note to, to end on, and, and thank you for that. We've certainly, uh, as Steve said, used the uh, preservation database uh, endlessly over the over the years. So definitely a great resource for the for the whole industry. And thank you for producing that and for all your work. Thank you for having us. We enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you're interested in more, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud.